All right, we're going to continue on in our uh, sermon series this morning. And if you uh, have your Bible with you, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we're at. If you don't have your Bible, you can find, uh, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. It's page 965 uh, in your pew Bible. 965, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's stand together as you find the text, and let me read God's Word for us. You follow along. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. may be seated. Well, again, good morning uh, to you. And uh, if you were here last night uh, for the block party. That was a good time. I want to just uh, say thanks to all of you that served to make that possible, particularly uh, to Pastor Manfred, who spent a lot of time uh, bringing that all together. I think we've got a picture here I want to show. That's not, that's not Pastor Manfred upside down there, but uh, he helped bring it together. But, uh, but that is me at the end of that line, all the way in the back there. You can't quite see me, but uh, we, had, we had the tumblers here again this past year. It was fantastic. This is pretty much what it looks like every Sunday at Calvary as well. Um, but it was fun having uh, the folks here last night. And it was a great opportunity uh, for folks from outside the community of Calvary, uh, but here are local in the area, to come on over and meet many of, of you all and to just participate in the hospitality uh, that Calvary could extend out. Uh, so it was a great time, and thanks for all those who brought, helped bring that together. This morning, we continue on in our sermon series on 2 Corinthians, and last week's message was about how God transforms us into the image of Jesus. And this week's message is about how God transforms us into the image of Jesus so that we can be used by Him to transform others into the same image of Jesus. In the golden chain of redemption that Paul lays out all throughout 2 Corinthians, the glory of God passes from the face of God the Father to the face of Jesus the Son, to to the face of Paul the Apostle, to the faces of the Corinthian Christians, to the faces of the world. In each instance, the glory of God is not meant to stagnate or stop but to flow on through each link in the chain all the way out into all of creation. Which is to say, if last week's sermon was about seeing the face of Jesus, and it was, this week's sermon is about sharing the face of Jesus. 
So in this morning's passage, what we're looking at and encountering is Paul's mission strategy, how he shares the face of Jesus with others. Now, these chapters here in 2 Corinthians, chapter 3 and then chapter 4, these are such thick, thick passages. And Paul is writing straight from the heart in a torrent of theological and pastoral passion. And all of it holds together in a beautiful way, but he's not writing in a calm, clear, linear fashion. He's received word that things in Corinth are not going well, and he quickly takes up pen in hand, and in a flurry of pastoral energy, he's writing a message back to the Corinthians. And it's a swirl of pastoral beauty and energy, but it can take a bit to figure out how to articulate it. So let me give you a distillation of this morning's message at the front end to help us stay on track as we move through the sermon. Paul's mission strategy, and he's laying out here for it in this text, but it's really kind of being laid out all through chapter 3 and 4 and beyond. But his mission strategy is this. The true minister of the gospel veils his earthly glory and unveils Christ's cruciform glory. The true minister of the gospel veils earthly glory and unveils Christ's cruciform glory. Now, before we get into our our text, I want to remind us about the story of Moses and his shining face. We looked at this last week, but I want to touch on it again because Moses and his shining face still are underlined. They're the backdrop for what Paul is saying here in chapter 4, 1 through 6. And in particular, I want to note an element of Moses's story that I didn't draw attention to last week, but that we're going to draw attention to this week. All right, so Moses's story, we start with that, and then we'll jump into our text. Back in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, verses 7 through 11, Paul introduces the story of Moses and his shining face, which can be found in Exodus 34. And if you remember the story of Moses and his shining face, Moses is the great prophet, the Jewish prophet, and he is called up onto Mount Sinai by God. And while he is up on Mount Sinai in God's presence, God gives to him the covenant that will govern the way that the people are to behave. And Moses is up in God's presence for so long that his face soaks in like a sponge the glory of God. And as Moses comes down off the mountain carrying the stone tablets of the covenant to share with the people, the people take one look at him and they see his glowing face and they go running away in fear. So Moses calls the people back to him and he tells them the word of God. And then going forward, he would veil his face. So whenever Moses would go into the tabernacle, which is where the presence of God would dwell, Moses would take off his veil and he would behold God face to face. He would see the glory of God and his face would soak up God's glory. And then he would go out and he would tell the people whatever God had told him to tell the people. And then he would veil his face again. So this is the story of Moses and his shining face. And that Paul's point in using this story of Moses and his shining face, and this is the point that we made from last week's sermon drawn from 318, is that we should focus our attention on the glory 
of Jesus' face rather than the glory of Moses' face. Moses was a prophet of the Old Covenant. Jesus is the one that Moses was prophesying about. And so as we behold the glory of Jesus, we're seeing the right and proper glory. And Paul's point is that if we stare at the fading glory of Moses, then we will only ever become fading earthly glory ourselves. But if we stare at the eternal face of Jesus, then we are moment by moment transformed into an image of Jesus' eternal glory. So that was last week's sermon in a nutshell, and Paul's use of Moses' story, as we looked at last week from 3.18. But now I want to focus on one more element of Moses' story that I didn't focus on last week. It's an element of the story that Paul draws particular attention to in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, verses 12 through 13. So just look up in your text just a little bit there, chapter 3, 12 through 13. Paul says this, he says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Paul tells us in verse 13 that Moses put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at his fading glory. Now, the Greek term that our translation renders as gaze actually means gaze. So it keeps it simple for us, right? It's <laughs> how most English translations of the Bible go. This term gaze, it can be translated, and it is in other ways translated in other versions too, to stare at or to, to look intently at, right? If you gaze at something, it doesn't just like catch you out of the peripherally of your eye, but, but you see something and then you're drawn to it and you gaze at it, you stare at it. Once the Israelites got over their initial fright, they were tempted to gaze at or look intently at or stare at Moses' glory. I think that would be, that's natural, right? If I walked in with a glowing face, you all would back away in fear initially, but then if you found out that it wasn't going to contaminate you or whatever you were afraid of, it would just be curious to look at. It would be hard not to look at a glowing face, right? And so Moses didn't want that. So he covered up his face so that the Israelites couldn't see it. In his day-to-day -day interactions in the camp, as he's walking around doing his stuff, he kept his face veiled. So it wasn't that Moses hid his face because the Israelites were too scared of it. He hid his face because they were too enticed by it. Now, why would Moses want the Israel, not want the Israelites to stare at the glory of God emanating from his face? Why does he not want the Israelites to stare at the glory of God emanating from his face? The answer to that question reveals a key aspect of Paul's mission strategy. So we're going to come back to that. We're going to answer that question as we move through Paul's mission strategy. But just hold on to that and think about the example of Moses as we look at Paul's teachings. All right, so on to chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And here is Paul's first point, his first mission strategy. Veil your worldly glory. Or we could say it like this. Don't be a super apostle. 
That's how it translates out into Paul's context. In 4.1, we read, Paul says, therefore, having this ministry. Now, let's pause there, because what does he mean by this ministry? Well, he means this ministry in opposition to the old ministry, this ministry of the new covenant in opposition to the ministry of Moses and the old covenant. All throughout chapter 3, Paul has been comparing and contrasting his own new covenant ministry with Moses' old covenant ministry. Paul's new covenant ministry in Jesus is what Moses' old covenant ministry was pointing to all along. The old covenant was the type. The new covenant is the archetype. The old covenant proclaimed Messiah, but the new covenant contained Messiah, which is to say that Paul's new covenant ministry in Jesus is superior to Moses' old covenant ministry of the law. And the point of contrasting his new covenant ministry with Moses' old covenant ministry isn't primarily for Paul to be able to say, I'm better than Moses. It's not to assert his superiority over Moses. As much as it is to assert his superiority over the super apostles. The super apostles were the disciples of Moses and the law. And the super apostles claimed Moses as their master. We've met the super apostles before in previous sermons. The term super apostle is the sort of tongue-in-cheek title that Paul uses to describe these teachers. And as you may recall, the super apostles were elite, wealthy, sophisticated, well-dressed, well-educated Jewish teachers who followed behind Paul when he left Corinth. And they were leading the Corinthians astray into a false gospel. So Paul comes into Corinth, he plants the church, he's there for about a year and a half, and then he moves on. And these super apostles, these Jewish teachers of the law, these experts, they come in behind Paul and they begin to, to impress the Corinthians and to lead them astray and to teach a false gospel. And in particular, the super apostles trafficked in the old earthly glory of Moses. And they sold themselves as experts in Moses' glory. Very likely, they went to Exodus 34 and the story of Moses' shining face, and they said, look at all the glory that Moses had. We know how to access that glory. Right? In fact, many commentators think the reason that Paul is bringing up Exodus 34 in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and on through 4 is precisely because the super apostles have brought it up with the Corinthians. And now Paul is offering his counterinterpretation of Exodus 34. And Paul is basically saying to the Corinthians in here in this letter and all throughout these chapters, the super apostles, they may have the fading glory of God in the face of Moses, but I have the unfading glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 2 of chapter 4, Paul begins to list all the ways that he doesn't minister as an apostle of the new covenant. He doesn't use disgraceful, underhanded ways. He doesn't practice cunning or tamper with God's word. He doesn't make secretive or obscure truth claims. But instead, he says he makes 
opens statements of truth and commends himself to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In short, Paul is honest and straightforward and candid, and he doesn't use trickery or manipulation. Now, Paul isn't just saying all of this just to say it. He's saying all of this as an implicit critique of the ministry of the super apostles, because these are all the sorts of things that the super apostles are doing to the Corinthians. And we fast forward in Paul's letter to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and we can see Paul list out all the ways that the super apostles are manipulating and using underhanded means to deceive the Corinthians. And I want us to note the connection that Paul is making here between earthly glory and manipulation. The earthly glory of the super apostles and their manipulating behavior towards the Corinthians. The super apostles were highlighting their earthly glory, their accomplishments, their high social standing, their success, their wealth, their education, and they were using all of this earthly glory to manipulate the Corinthians and to lead them astray. And isn't that just how it so often works in this world? Isn't that true of our own experience? That earthly glory often manipulates us and leads us astray. Isn't it true that earthly glory often leads us to do things and to make choices and behave towards people in ways that we otherwise wouldn't do. We give up true friendship for popularity. We give up the deep riches of family for the cheap riches of wealth. We give up the eternal glory of God in the face of Jesus for the fleeting glories of this world. And to our own regret, we often sacrifice our truest and best impulses on the altar of fading earthly glory. And that was the very thing that was happening to the Corinthians. They were infatuated with the earthly glory that they were seeing in the super apostles. And they were letting themselves be led astray by it. And Paul was basically saying, I am not manipulating you. I won't manipulate you. I won't lead you astray. Stick with me. Now, let's return to the question we left hanging back in chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, where Paul is commenting on Moses and how Moses would veil his glory so that the Israelites would not gaze at it. Why did Moses veil his glory? Well, verse 13 tells us that Moses veiled his glory because he didn't want the Israelites to stare at it. And the reason he didn't want the Israelites to stare at it, look at verse 13, because it was the outcome of what was being brought to an end. It was fading. It was a fading glory. And Moses didn't want the Israelites to be captivated or led astray by an earthly glory that wasn't going to last. Moses knew his place in the redemptive history, and he knew that he and his covenant were only types and shadows that pointed beyond themselves to the true and lasting glory of God in Messiah. So even though Moses had earthly glory in spades, he covered it up and hid it because he knew that it would lead the Israelites to focus on the wrong things. This is why in Numbers 12, 3, we read that Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. He could have had the Israelites eating out of his hand, but he didn't. 
In personal humility, he veiled his earthly glory. But not the super apostles. They were not very good disciples of Moses. The super apostles were trafficking in Moses' earthly glory, but without Moses' humility. They weren't veiling their earthly glory like Moses did. They were robing themselves in it and parading it around, and they were, f- they were using it to sell their false gospel and to win followers. They were saying to the Corinthians, follow our teaching and you can become like us, wealthy, prestigious, sophisticated, successful. They were using earthly glory as bait to manipulate the Corinthians and to lead them astray. And what was happening in Corinth in the first century happens still today. And you just turn on your TV or search around YouTube and you will find today's super apostles. And they're called prosperity preachers. And prosperity preachers make a point of highlighting their earthly glory, their wealth, their health, their success, their popularity. Prosperity preachers talk about the size of their home, how big their private jets are, all the important people they know, and how much their shoes cost. I mean, this is what prosperity preachers do. They draw attention to all the the earthly forms of glory that they have accrued. And they use all that earthly glory to manipulate their followers. Send me a check and I'll send you a blessing. Give me some money and I'll give you some of God's earthly glory. Just like the glory of the super apostles, the glory of today's prosperity preachers is beautiful to look at and it's amazing to behold, but the fundamental problem with earthly glory, and this is Paul's point all throughout 2 Corinthians, the fundamental problem of earthly glory is that it's fleeting and it's temporary. Earthly glory cannot endure the hardships of life. And it can't help the one who possesses it endure the hardships of life. The true and lasting glory of God is the glory, ironically, counterintuitively, the true and lasting glory of God is the glory of the crucified Jesus. Crucified glory isn't much to look at by worldly standards because, I mean, who wants to live a life of crucified glory? None of us do in our natural selves. But it's the kind of lasting glory that can endure suffering and hardship and still rejoice. It's the kind of glory that can go to the cross rejoicing, rejoice all the way through the crucifixion, and come out the other side still rejoicing. It's the kind of glory that transcends and is superior to all forms of earthly glory. And that's the kind of glory that Paul embodied and the kind of glory that he preached. So listen, beware of pastors and preachers who trumpet their earthly glory and try to sell you earthly glory. Beware their manipulation and twisting of God's word and their underhanded ways. If you set your hope on earthly glory, you are setting yourself up to be manipulated and enticed away from the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not just straight-up prosperity preachers who trumpet their earthly glory. 
The rest of us regular pastors are tempted to traffic in earthly glory too. We have our more own subtle ways, perhaps, of parading our earthly forms of glory. We perhaps casually drop illustrations in our sermons about our fancy vacations. Maybe the the famous person that we traded a text with the other day just to let you know that we know important people. The renovations that we're doing on our home. Oh, yeah, it's so hard without the fourth bathroom, you know, in our home. We may not be straight up teaching a prosperity gospel, but all pastors are tempted to use earthly glory to gain followership, to underscore their message. And it's not just pastors. It's not just pastors who are tempted to parade earthly forms of glory. All of us, all of you, we all have a little super apostle inside of us trying to get out. All of us have a tendency to put our best and most expensive glorious foot forward when presenting ourselves to others. Our Pinterest board, our Instagram feed, our Facebook posts, our tweets, the comments we make at dinner parties or at the neighborhood block parties, all of these can be ways of selling ourselves by means of our earthly glory. And all that earthly glory, it's not wrong, not any more wrong than it was that Moses' face was shining. Earthly glory isn't wrong, but it can't save you. And it can't lead you to the true and saving knowledge of God. And listen, because we're talking about mission, it can't save others. It can't lead others to the true and lasting and saving knowledge of God. Indeed, more often than not, earthly glory will take us away from the knowledge of God. So if we're going to be effective ministers of the new covenant, if we as a church are going to be effective ministers of the new covenant, or as individuals in whatever area God has called us to minister are going to be effective ministers of the new covenant, we need to learn to veil our earthly glory. Not reject it, not deny it, not pretend that we don't have any. All those are dishonest in their own way. We don't need to hide the fact that we live in a nice home in River Forest or lie about our Disney vacations or pretend that we're destitute when we're not. That's all false humility. We don't need to be ashamed of our earthly glory. God didn't give us things in this world so that we could be ashamed of ourselves. God doesn't want us to be ashamed of it. But we do have to be careful that we don't use the good earthly glories that God has given us to make ourselves and our gospel more attractive. Because selling the gospel with earthly glory isn't the surest way to lead people to Jesus. We need to be willing to veil our earthly glory. And like Moses and his humility, and like Paul and his example, only unveil it if Jesus asks us to unveil it. So veil your earthly glory. That's the first half of Paul's mission strategy. It's what the super apostles were very much not doing. But veiling one's earthly glory, that's only halfway there. Paul has another side of it. We veil our earthly glory, but we unveil the glory of God in the face of Christ. Unveil the cruciform glory of Jesus. That's the second half of Paul's mission strategy. 
So let's see how he works out this second half of his mission strategy in verses 3 through 6. Now, Paul begins verse 3 by saying, and even if our gospel is veiled, now again, I want to pause here. What does he mean about his gospel being veiled? Well, he's referencing a comment that he made back in 3, 12 through 13, which we've already looked at. Look back again, 3, 12 through 13. Paul is saying, since we, as ministers of the new covenant, have such a hope, we ministers of the new covenant are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face. So Paul is saying, Moses would put a veil over his face, but we ministers of the new covenant, we don't veil our face. And then in 318, the text we preached on last week, we live with unveiled faces, constantly beholding the glory of God and radiating the glory of God out. So where Moses would veil his face to hide his earthly glory, Paul is saying we share in Christ's crucified glory and we don't veil our face. We live with an unveiled face. But here in verse 3, that's what he's alluding to. And he's saying, but even if our gospel is veiled, it's not veiled because we're veiling it. It's veiled because a veil lies on the hearts of those who would see it. Their hearts are, mind, their hearts are, are blinded. Their minds are blinded. Right? So the, the point that Paul is making is that the, 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 the break in the chain isn't because Paul is veiling glory, but because the veil has lain on the hearts of those who would otherwise see it. Without the enlightening work of the Spirit, Paul's new covenant crucified glory just looks like suffering and crucifixion. Our job is to unveil the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then it's God's job to take away the veil that might lie over the hearts of those who would otherwise see it. So if our job is to unveil the glory of God in the face of Christ, how do we go about doing that? How do we as a church walk around with unveiled faces, giving to others the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus? I want to skip ahead to verse 6, and I'm going to come back and look at 5 and 6 again, but I want to skip to the end here uh, to make this point. Verse 6 is one of my favorite verses, and I used to think that Paul was saying that God has shown in our heart to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, that's true, but it's not, I think, the point that Paul is trying to make here because he's already made that point back in chapter 3, verse 18. What Paul is saying in verse 6, I think, is that God has shown in Paul's heart to give others the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Remember, all throughout this passage, Paul is likening himself to a new Moses. Just as Moses went into God's presence and his face was enlightened by the glory of God, so too Paul has gone into God's presence, and his face is enlightened by the glory of God in Jesus. And just as Moses shared that glory with the Israelites when he spoke God's word to the people, so too Moses shares the glory that he has received from God with the Corinthians. And this is the heart of his apostolic ministry and his sense of calling. 
He has stared into the face of God in Christ. He has soaked in God's glory. And now he is turning to the Corinthians and he is speaking God's words to the Corinthians with his own glowing face. And so what Paul is concerned about in verse 4 is to make the point not simply that God has shown into his own heart to give him the light of the knowledge of glory of God in the face of Christ, but he has shown into Paul's heart so that Paul is able to give to others the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now again, how do we do this? How do we show off the light that God has poured out into our hearts in the face of Christ? I think two ways we can look uh, here in verses 5 and 6. First is we unveil the light of Jesus when we live lives that serve others at cost to ourselves. So Paul puts some flesh and bones on this in verse 5 when he says that what he proclaims is not himself as Lord. That's the sort of move that the super apostles were making. They were proclaiming themselves as lords and masters. But what he proclaims is Jesus Christ as Lord, and he, Paul, as a servant of the Corinthians for Jesus' sake. Unveiling your earthly glory will make you Lord and master of others. But unveiling Jesus' crucified glory will make you a servant of others. Isn't that how life works? The greater our earthly glory, the more we move to the top of the world's food chain, and the higher we are up on the world's food chain, the more we are able to lord it over others and to make them our servants. But the greater our share in Christ's crucified glory, the more we move to the bottom of the world's food chain and the more we become servants of others. John chapter 13, the apostle John writes about Jesus' last night with his disciples. And they're there in the upper room. And in John 13, John says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things and placed all things into his hands. So Jesus, knowing that all lordship over all creation was being given to him, what does he do? And in John 13, he picks up the basin and the towel and he washes the feet of his disciples. Because that's what crucified glory looks like. Crucified glory doesn't ascend to the top to lord it over everyone. Crucified glory goes to the bottom and serves people. And that's the example that Jesus has given. And it's the example that Paul is trying to live out in his ministry with the Corinthians and beyond. Christ was the suffering servant of humanity who in love not only washed the feet of his disciples, but he gave up his very life for his disciples. He entered into shame for the sake of his disciples. Jesus endured the reproaches of the world and gave up earthly glory for our sake. And he invites us to live that same life out for others. Not in a masochistic way so that I can just heap shame and reproach upon myself, but because of love. Jesus went to the cross because he loves us. That's why he endured the shame. That's why he bore the reproach, because of love. And this is why Paul bears the shame and the reproach that comes upon him because he loves the Corinthians. But the super apostles didn't love the Corinthians and they weren't willing to bear shame and reproach. 
But if you're willing to, to shine the light of Christ, if you want to shine the light of Christ in the lives of others, you have to be driven by a heart of love for those that you are shining the light of Christ upon, even to the point if it means you have to bear shame and reproach to shine that light. That is the true Christ life. So often we would, pref we would prefer to serve out of the abundance of our earthly glory because it always keeps us in a power position. But when we veil our earthly glory and we unveil Christ's cruciform glory, it moves us into positions of vulnerability and sometimes even suffering for the sake of others. So unveil the light of Jesus means to live lives that serve others sacrificially, even cost to ourselves. And then we unveil the light of Jesus, verse 6, when we live lives that reveal Jesus himself as the light of the gospel. What do we proclaim as the message of the gospel? We ultimately proclaim the person of Jesus. Note in verse 6 that Paul doesn't say that God's light has shone in our hearts. He says that God himself has shone in our hearts to give us light. This distinction is subtle, but it's important. God doesn't just sit up in heaven and then he sends things down to us. He sends grace down to us. He sends joy down to us. He sends light down to us. He sends life down to us while he remains distant and removed from us. The thing that he gives us is himself. He is joy. He is light. He is life. He is love. And he can't give us these things without giving us himself. And he gives us himself in the person of his son who is one substance with him. So when we possess Jesus, we are possessing the light and the glory and the goodness and the love and the kindness and the peace of God. Jesus is the thing that we possess because he himself is God. I was talking with some ministry leaders this past week and we were talking about serving uh, out of the abundance of the joy that God has put into our hearts. And I was making the point that joy has a name. And the name of joy is Jesus. And I was drawing from some of the sermons that we had preached here at Calvary. And we know that the significance of Jesus being joy, we, we understand the fullness of that when we can enter into suffering and still have joy. And I invited them to think about, I invite you this morning to think about that time in your life when it's not been going well, health crisis, family crisis, work crisis, financial crisis, you name it, you know when it's not been going well. But in the midst of it not going well, Jesus shows up. And even though it's still not going well and the crisis has not abated, Jesus' presence in your life is somehow makes it all okay. Somehow the presence of Jesus is the glory that we need. And that's the thing that we give to people. He's the one that we give to people when we proclaim the gospel. And this is what Paul is saying. You can have all the worldly glory. 
You can have all of these things. And God didn't come to just give you more of that stuff. He came to give you himself because it's only in the presence of Jesus that we find the true, lasting, eternal peace of God. God loves us and he wants to be near us. He doesn't want to just give us things. He wants to be near us. St. Augustine, he says this, For as there is nothing greater or better, he has promised us himself. And that's the great hope that we have in life and the great hope that we have to give to people that need to hear the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we give off Jesus' cruciform glory, what we're showing in the reality of cruciform glory is that somehow there is glory even in cruciformity. There is a glory that is so transcendent that even in crucifixion, the glory still shines out. That even in the breaking down of all of this world's goods and glories, somehow the light of God still shines in the midst of darkness. This is the thing that we are giving off. So when our lives reflect joy in the midst of suffering and love in the midst of suffering and peace in the midst of suffering, we are reflecting the light of the crucified Christ. God has given us the best thing that he could give us, and it's himself. And so we embrace this light into our hearts to give it off to others. Father, thank you that you have shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ so that we could shine that same light into the life of others. Lord, I pray for us here this morning. Sometimes we forget that light that you've put into our hearts and we start trying to minister out of other resources, earthly glory, God, the true, lasting, eternal glory is the glory that is contained in the face of your Son. Help us to soak it in and then radiate it out to others. God, remove the blindness, remove the hardened hearts, remove the veil of those we love, Lord, so that they can see the glory of Christ and be swept up in an eternal peace that cannot be found in the things of this world. God, we love you. We thank you for your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.